0: Okay, we'll turn to Ecclesiastes chapter three. Uh, my name is Nathan Lamaster. For those of you who don't know, uh, who don't know me, uh, I am an Old Testament professor at the seminary. Uh, just to clarify, the seminary was not named after me, but uh, I think Nathan Nathan Boozness is not here right now, so I can say this. I think I was hired just because of my last name. So. It was, it was a perk, uh, but I'm glad to be with you today, this morning, as we look at uh, the Word together. Pastor Harry, of course, has been going through James uh, for, for quite some time now, and uh, in James 5, last time, we looked at the beginning portion of James 5, and I'm going to kind of piggyback a little bit off of, off of that, but as an Old Testament professor... Uh, I'm going to go to the Old Testament in particular. So let me just read that passage that we looked at last week with Pastor Harry. James 5, uh, 1 through 6. Let me just read that quickly just so that we have it in our mind. So come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, And will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So we have a clear condemnation. A very clear condemnation against the rich. But it's not just the fact that they're rich, as Harry explained last time. It's not just because they're rich that they're being condemned. It's because of how they're viewing wealth. How they're viewing, in a sense, gaining the upper hand. Where they are willing to defraud, they're willing to cheat, they're willing to do whatever that they can in order to better themselves, at least according to their perspective, to better themselves. Well, James, uh, the more that I study James and the more that I read James, it reminds me a great deal of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And so we're going to be in Ecclesiastes today. Ecclesiastes is one of our three key books of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. We have Ecclesiastes, we have the book of Job, and of course we have Proverbs, and uh, Ecclesiastes, you're going to find that there's a lot of parallels between the book of Ecclesiastes and James in particular. And uh, one of the difficulties, can okay, I say difficulties with wisdom literature, is that you can read it once and kind of get the face, the face value of it. You can see, okay, I understand kind of what you're saying, but... But it takes a really, really long time to understand wisdom literature. So uh, I tell my guys, uh, my students in class, I say, you probably don't want to preach wisdom literature as a young pastor, just in a a new church. You probably don't want to delve into wisdom literature because it just requires a great deal of stewing, a great deal of time, a great deal of thinking through that. Uh, I did not take my own advice, And uh, we're in Ecclesiastes 3 today. Now we're going to take a look. Uh, I'm going to read this passage all together just so we have an idea of uh, what Solomon is saying. Again, we'll see kind of the face value of what he's saying. But wisdom literature requires you to, to think intently, to think deeply, to take your time, ponder on these issues... Ponder on the things that Solomon is saying. So, Ecclesiastes, we're going to take a look at verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through verse 15. Let me start in Ecclesiastes 3, 1. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, time to die, time to plant, time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, time to heal, time to break down, time to build up, time to weep, time to laugh. Time to mourn, time to dance, time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, time to keep, a time to cast away, time to tear and a time to sow, time to keep silence and a time to speak, time to love and a time to hate, time for war and a time for Peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business or the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. We'll talk about that. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. We'll talk about that. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful, to do good as long as they live. Okay, so, <clears throat> before we delve into the text itself, I want us to think just for a second on wisdom. As Solomon sits down and tries to, uh, and writes Ecclesiastes, uh, what is he trying to accomplish? What is he trying to do? Why does he put it into wisdom literature in particular? What is wisdom literature trying to accomplish? Now, we might read this at face value and say, yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying. There's a time for this and a time for that. That's pretty clear. Uh, I know times. I can imagine times in my life. You know, there's a time to mourn. There's a time to dance. Uh, those, <laughs> as my wife will say, I'm not a very good dancer. A uh, time to weep and a time to laugh. I can see times in my life where, you know, there's a time for this and a time for that. But we still ask the question, Solomon, why did you put that in? What what are you trying to communicate to us? What are you trying to say in particular? And then in verse 9, he starts by asking, or starts that section there by asking a question, what gain has the worker from his toil? And we say, okay, there's a time for this and a time for that, but then you're asking a question, what gain is there in the work that I'm doing? How do those two things relate? How are these ideas related together, and uh, what is Solomon trying to accomplish here? Okay, let me. We're going to be in uh, we're going to be in several sections in Ecclesiastes. Okay, but I want us to think about wisdom and what wisdom is in particular, and then we're going to come right back to this passage. Let me just read the introduction to Ecclesiastes quickly here. Okay, Ecclesiastes one one through eleven. You're certainly familiar with this passage, says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. He starts out his book by saying, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it rises. Uh, The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind on its circuits, the wind returns. Let me stop there just for a second. He's painting a picture of man who comes into the world, born into the world, dies, and then the next generation picks up right after that, born into the world, dies, and this continual cycle, you're born, you have children, you perish, and you die but he says, that. but the world remains, the earth remains forever. Leolam in the Hebrew, in other words, it remains for a period that is longer than any of us can comprehend. The sun rises, sun goes down, and then it, in the Hebrew, it has this idea like it runs and it puffs and runs back to the place where it rises again. Okay, So it starts where it rises, and it goes up and around, and then it dips down below the horizon and it says it's like a runner and it just <laughs> runs back to the place where it's going to come up again and it just keeps going and going and going and going that way well the wind blows to the south and it goes again to the north and around and around goes the wind on its circuits the wind returns verse 7 all the streams run to the sea but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow there they flow again and then verse 8 all things are full of weariness A man cannot utter it, his eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, what has been done is what will be done again, there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new, it has already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to to be among those who come after. He's saying, you're going to be born you're going to die, people are going to forget you, just as they forgot the hundredth generation that was before us. He says the earth just remains, all these cycles continue and continue and continue, but you're going to be born and you're going to die. And he says, from his perspective, under the sun, he says, that's vanity. What are we trying to do here? What are we trying to accomplish here? Now, I want us to take a close look at this phrase, under the sun. You'll see in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, a time and a matter for every matter under heaven. Okay, It's a similar phrase. He's saying under the sun or under heaven means from our perspective, from a human's perspective, I look around and I see I've got so many years on this earth and then I'm going to die and I'm going to hand off, whatever i've done my my wealth my resources my reputation whatever that that is i'm just going to hand it off to the next generation that's coming up and solomon elsewhere in ecclesiastes says i don't know if that if who i'm handing all of that off to they didn't work for it they don't know what it cost me to make all of that to do all of that i don't know if they're going to be a wise person or if they're going to be a fool so he says it's vanity Maybe, maybe my great-grandchildren squander everything that I worked for. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. So when he uses the phrase under heaven or under the sun, he's talking about our perspective. From my perspective, from a human's perspective, this is everything that's done in the system that we have in the world here. Let's take just a second and contrast that with our James 5 passage. In James 5, James is condemning the rich people because all that they're doing is trying to operate within that system, within this system, I should say. All that they're trying to do is say, I want to get more wealth. I want to get more money. I want to get more prestige, I want to get more power, I want to get more, more, more of all of these things, and I'm willing to not pay my workmen, I'm willing to sacrifice my good name, I'm willing to do whatever it takes in order to get more, 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 more. And James says, hey guys, everything is everything's just going to burn up. Like You've sacrificed, you've given away a good name, You've chosen not to act righteously. You've given all of that up just so that you can gain more wealth in a world wherein you're just going to die and hand off your wealth to the people who come after you. He says you've wasted all that God has given you. You've wasted all of that. You thought that the end goal was just you making money or making wealth, power, prestige in the world. He says it's, <laughs> it's worthless. worthless all of that is worthless. It's not going to accomplish anything if that's your goal in and of itself. So Solomon comes along here in chapter 3, and Solomon is going to reorient our perspective. He's going to change our focus. As those who fear God, a very important idea that he paints throughout Ecclesiastes As those who fear God, as those who follow after God, we need a a complete worldview shift and change in comparison to what the world does. Okay? So let me start just uh, in our section where we have a time for this and a time for that. Okay? We have our perspective of under heaven. Remember, this is from our perspective, in a sense, within this system. We're saying there's a time for every matter under heaven, but that's not all that Solomon is saying. He's not just saying only there's a time to be born and a time to die, a, plan to, a, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted and on and on and on. From Solomon's perspective in this section and also throughout several sections in Ecclesiastes, his idea, we'll see it a little bit later on too, His idea, his theology, is that God is the one who's controlling these things. God's the one who controls the system that we're in. God's the one who's sovereign over these things. And what is wisdom trying to accomplish? The idea of wisdom within wisdom literature, Old Testament, in James as well, if you remember the section, the wisdom, which is from above, that James talks about, same idea. Wisdom is your worldview. Okay, wisdom is your worldview. There's lots of other kinds of wisdom literature. There's uh, Egyptian wisdom literature. Uh, you can just do a Google search for Egyptian wisdom literature. You can see Akkadian wisdom literature. You can see Greek wisdom literature. There's lots of different kinds of wisdom literature. And each one of those is trying to say, hey, this is what your worldview should be. This is how you should view the whole scope of creation, of your world. How do I view suffering? How do I view loss? How do I view major things within life? How do I understand those things? Okay, but the one thing that ties biblical wisdom together is a fear of God, right? Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1.7. Proverbs starts out the book by saying the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Why is it the beginning of wisdom? Because if wisdom is my correct worldview, I have to start with my relationship with God. I have to start with me fearing God. And we need to understand what does that mean? We're going to talk about it in just a little bit. What does it mean that I fear God? So if I, if I have a correct worldview, then that correct worldview has to start in the right place. And Proverbs 1.7 says it. Ecclesiastes says, says the fear of God several times throughout. We'll see at the very end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12. He says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Job says it Job 28 28 says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom all of our wisdom literature That we have in the Old Testament the foundation of it is the fear of God You can have all kinds of wisdom literature But if you go to Egyptian wisdom literature or you go to Akkadian wisdom literature or Babylonian wisdom literature They're not going to say the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom Why not? Because their perspective of my worldview, how do I view the world around me, is what can I get? What can I accomplish? How can I manipulate things around me to become more rich? How can I manipulate things around me to live a longer life? How can I manipulate people around me to gain more power? Okay, Solomon changes our perspective on that. And when he lists out this whole section, a time for this and a time for that, a time for this and a time for that, it's to orient our thinking to say, your life is, in my life, is this much of a blip in God and what God has been doing in the world. And God, in all of the dealings and all of the workings and all of the things that are happening within the world, God's the one who's sovereign over those things. And it's wisdom that I am trying to employ to understand how God or why God is doing these things. Okay, turn just quick to chapter 7, verse 10. I'm going to give an example of this. Okay, Ecclesiastes seven ten. He said Solomon says, Do not say, Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. And what does he mean by that? Says, Don't, in a sense, he's saying, Don't be nostalgic. Why are the former days better than these? It's not from wisdom that you're asking that question. Why not? Because wisdom is your worldview for the here and now. So if something is happening to me now, it's from wisdom that I'm asking, why is God doing this? Why is this happening? Why has God brought this on me? And I'm trying to understand how God is orchestrating the world as it is currently. Whether whether things are going great for me whether things are not going so great for me, whatever it is that's happening to me or that's occurring in the world around us, I'm trying to use wisdom, I'm trying to use biblical wisdom to understand what is God doing. So if I'm nostalgic, in a sense, chapter seven, verse 10, and I ask, well, why were the former days better than these ones? Why was it better back then? He's saying that's the wrong question to ask. You're asking the wrong question there. You should be asking, why is God doing what he's doing right now? Maybe the former days were better. Maybe it was better 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago. Maybe it was better then, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because we need to employ wisdom to understand what God is doing. Now, yeah. so he says a time for this and a time for that all the way through verse 8 in chapter 3. The idea is God's sovereign over all these things. And I'll, I'll show you why I come to that conclusion starting in verse 9. Now, he switches. Just keep, keep that in mind. A time for this and a time for that. God is sovereign over all of these things. God has determined There's a time that this war is going to take place. There's a time when this peace is going to happen. God is sovereign over all of those things. But then Solomon switches it back to the individual, especially in verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? What's the relationship between saying time for this, a time for that, a time for this, and a time for that? And verse 9, to say what gain has the worker from his toil? that's the issue under the sun. That's the problem that we have when we consider the idea of living under the sun. So if God is sovereign over everything, if God orchestrates the world, there's nothing that's outside of his control, then what does it matter what I work for? What does it matter? What, what am I accomplishing? What am I actually accomplishing? Up until this point, Solomon has said, you know, basically your vanity of all vanities. He talks about everything that he constructed. He said, I built, I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks, planted in them all kinds of fruit trees, built a giant palace, built a temple, built all of these things. Uh, I had all of the money that I could ever want or use. I had no lack of anything. I had all of the power. There was nothing to hold me back, nothing to constrain me. And he says, I came all the way to the end. And why does it matter? It's all vanity. He talks about vanity of all of his toil, everything that he tried to accomplish. So he comes back to this question in verse 9. He says, all right, if God's sovereign over everything, if he's orchestrating everything, then what, what does it matter What I do. Verse 10, he reorients our thinking. He says, I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, There's a particular word that Solomon uses here. The idea is appropriate. He's made everything appropriate in its time. Okay. It's not, he's made everything beautiful in its time. I mean, he just finished talking about a time for war, a time for hate, uh, a time for mourning. He's made everything beautiful in its time. The idea is he made everything appropriate in its time. He has set the time for it, and he's made it appropriate at that time. We're employing wisdom, biblical wisdom, to try to understand what is he doing in the world. Why has he made a time for this right now? Why is this happening to me right now? Not why are the former days better? Maybe days will get better in the future. Maybe this will change. Maybe that'll change. Wisdom says, don't worry about the change. Worry about what God's doing right now and try to understand what he's doing right now through your wisdom. Now he goes on in verse 11. He says, he has also put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Okay? Again, I'm reading from the ESV. It reads, he has put eternity into man's heart. And the question is, what exactly does that mean? When, we, when I use the English word eternity, it's probably giving a wrong connotation to you. Uh, for, for the Hebrew, the idea is he has set the ability for you to know or to think outside of your own lifespan. Okay? I can't comprehend what Abraham's life was like. I can't comprehend the time gap from Abraham all the way to the 21st century in my life. I can study history and I can, I can try to delve into some of those things, but I really can't comprehend what that span of time was. I have no idea what the world looked like when God created Adam. Uh, I can't comprehend that. I'm a, I'm a little tiny blip in the whole history of the world. But I have the ability, I have a God-given ability to think past my own lifespan. Okay? We can think about eternity. In that sense, eternity is a helpful word here. But I can't comprehend what, what do you mean by Eternity. We go to heaven, and there's eternity, something that does not end. I, I cannot comprehend that at all. But I have the ability to think about it. An animal has no ability to think outside of their own lifespan. Okay, they have no ability to do that at all. That's something that God has put within us. He has put eternity into man's heart. So I can look and I can analyze the world around me. And I can say, okay, there was a time for this and a time for that. Uh, There was a civil war that started in 1861. There was a Pax Romana uh, during Jesus' time. There was this and there was that. And I can try to comprehend and understand something of the history of the world. But it says... God has set eternity into your heart so that you can think outside of your own, your own lifespan, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Okay, so he set eternity in your heart, the ability to think past your own lifespan, but you can't comprehend everything that God is doing in the world. Why was there a civil war in America in 1861? Why did that come about? Not how did it come about, but why did it come about? If God's sovereign over all of these things, why did that happen? Okay, so I can't totally understand what God is doing from the beginning to the end. So Solomon switches back in verse 12 and he puts the focus back on the individual. said, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now Solomon is not saying, hey, just go do whatever you want. Your life is good. Just be a hedonist and do whatever you want. That's not what he's saying at all. Okay, let me look at um, 5, chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. This will link us back together with James 5 as well. Okay, chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. (laughs) Uh, What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Uh, I saw uh, a scale uh, of wealth comparison, and uh, you know it gave like a little, it was on YouTube or something like that. It gave like a little you know clip and said, "This is this is you know the average American's wealth." Right, and it was like an inch long or something like that. Like this is the average American, how much they're how much they're worth, and it did like you know the the GDP, the gross domestic product of the state of Florida or something like that, and it went a little bit longer, a little bit longer, and uh, and then it said this is the wealth uh, that Elon Musk currently has right now, and it just went <sighs> and just kept going and going and going and going and going. And you think back to the comparison, like this is the amount of money that, that I, as, a, as an Old Testament professor, uh, has, okay? <laughs> and then here's Elon Musk, and it just went and went and went and went. And, uh, uh, but Elon Musk still eats three meals a day. He can only eat so much food. It might be a little bit more expensive food than I eat. Uh, but he can only drive one car at, this, at, at once. Uh, he, uh, you know, he, he can only do one thing at a time. Goods, when, when wealth increases, verse 11, when the goods increase, they also increase who ate them or who eats them up. That wealth, that money, that value. Elon Musk is not enjoying all of that, he has more money than he has the ability to work with or, or, you know, to enjoy himself. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Again, the idea, is there, the idea there is not you're rich and so you're bad. The idea is You're spending your entire life within this system thinking about how can I gain more wealth in order to please myself? How can I gain more power in order to please myself? You're only thinking in terms of this world system. And Solomon says, I was there, I've been there, I did all of that, I had as much money as I wanted, I tried to do everything that I possibly could to bring pleasure to myself, I came to the end and I said, that's completely worthless, as far as self-satisfaction, actual satisfaction goes. So when it uses this this statement, this full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep, he's contrasting not... Not actual, this person is richer than this person, but this rich person bases their entire life in this world system. And in contrast to that, we have a laborer. And the laborer should recognize, everyone, should recognize verse 13. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil this is God's gift to man. That's a completely different perspective. That's a completely different perspective. If I view everything that I have as not something that I earned, not something that I have rights to, but ultimately as just a gift from God, it changes my whole perspective. Because when I lose that thing, or lose that stuff, then I seek to try to understand, like Job, I seek to try to understand, why is God doing this? Not, I had rights to that, I'm angry, God give it back to me because it's mine. But I say, why is God doing this right now? Why am I suffering right now? On the contrary, why am I greatly blessed right now? Uh, why has God given me all of these things right now? What's the reason? What's the? What should I do with this? It's a question of stewardship. It's a question of stewardship. Whether there's little, whether there's a lot, whatever that it is, God's saying you need to employ your biblical wisdom for stewardship, to be a good steward of whatever it is that you have. Recognize as your basis, this is God's gift to man. Everything that you have, that, that changes our thinking. It reorients our thinking. I, everything that you have is a gift from God. I'm breathing now. I'm reading now. I have the ability to read. I have the ability to be together with you. I had the ability with my wife and our baby to drive here today. I had safety on the road. I, everything. Everything gift from God, not something that's earned, not something that I have rights to and I deserve. So Solomon reorients our thinking. He starts out by saying God is sovereign over everything that's happening. We need to employ our biblical wisdom in order to understand what God is doing in the world. We need to recognize on the individual level what gain has the worker from his toil. Well, he gains from his toil because he recognizes that this is a gift from God and I want to be a good steward of that. He's not thinking in terms of this is my system in the world and I'm going to manipulate and do whatever I can to get more and I'm willing to walk over anybody to do that. But the question is why has God set it up this way? Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Whatever God is doing, however God has orchestrated the world, whatever He's accomplishing in the world, that endures forever. I do not endure forever in this world. I'm going to die. I'm going to come to the end of my life. Or, you know, <laughs> maybe I'm going to be raptured. Okay, you come back. Uh, to our hope for the rapture. Within this world system, I do not endure forever. Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. When we come all the way to the end, and we come all the way to the very end, culmination, the world is done away with, there is not a single thing in all of that history of the world that you can add to or that you can take away from. Because God has painted and sovereignly orchestrated the whole picture exactly how he wanted to orchestrate it. Why has God done it that way? God has done it so that people fear before him. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why Why did God set it up this way? Why has God created the world in this way? Why is God sovereign over the world in this way as he is? Why is that? Because it gives you and me the opportunity to think that your life is a little tiny blip. It's a little tiny blip in all of this history. That little tiny blip that we have, it's not God trying to be malicious. It's not God saying, ha, 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 look, I'm in control and you're not. You tried to accomplish this and it turned out the opposite way. It's not God doing anything of the sort. It's God giving you a gift. It's God saying everything that's in that blip that you have, that's a gift that I'm giving to you. And what we rely upon is statements like God works all things together for good for those who love him. There's a time for everything in your life. Right now we're seeing war in all lots of parts of the world. Sometimes in your own life, you're going to weep. Sometimes you're going to laugh. Sometimes you're going to break things down. Sometimes you're going to build something new. Sometimes you're going to do this. Sometimes you're going to do that. All of it is to recognize that as those things are occurring, they're a gift from God, and everything that happens within your life, God is orchestrating for your good. Now, wisdom is the well from which we're drawing to try to understand why God is doing that. Okay, Why is he doing that? What's he trying to accomplish in those things? Uh, Let me turn to chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 16. Solomon is the wisest person in the world. (laughs) Uh, Solomon asked for wisdom from God and received wisdom from God. Certain certain times in Ecclesiastes, it seems like he thinks that, he's not sure whether that was a blessing or a curse. Okay, chapter 8, verse 16, he says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much... Man may toil in seeking it. He will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. He's talking about himself there. Even if somebody comes to you and says, I am really, really wise. I've got it all figured out. I know what God is doing from point A to point B. Solomon says that guy, he doesn't know anything of what he's talking about. God has set it up in this way. So that we seek to employ wisdom and within particular instances try to understand in my life, what am I or why has God orchestrated it this way in my life? And we seek to understand what God is doing. But God has set it up in such a way. Ages past, all the history that we have seen, everything that God has done, he set it up in this way so that we fear him. Because there's no way for us to really understand everything that God is doing in the world. There's no way for us to comprehend all that God is doing in the world. So we fear him. Let me, let me orient this idea of fear just for a second. When it says that we fear him, it's exactly the creator-creature distinction that we're talking about says, God has set it up this way so that you fear him, meaning you recognize God is holy, you are not. You recognize God is eternal, you were born at a certain time. You recognize God is all-powerful, you're not. You recognize everything about God that you're not, and you... Fear him, God has set it up in that way that we would fear him. Verse 15, that which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And it says, God seeks after, God seeks what has been driven away. The I there, the the phrase that's been driven away, it's the idea of what has disappeared. Okay, so in our lifetime, we have a very particular, you know, short period in our lifetime and says something that's disappeared in this lifetime, God goes back and gets it and he brings it back. And it's like a circle that God keeps bringing things back. Like we haven't seen this for 200 years. Well, God's going to go get it and bring it back. And he's going to keep all of that cycle moving in that way to accomplish what he wants, to accomplish what his goal is in the world. Now in contrast to that worldview, that correct worldview, you start with the fear of God. You start with an understanding of God who is in control. We move from that to our individual single life and we see what are all of the things that God is doing in my life? How has he orchestrated all of these things in my life? Why is he bringing this into my life right now? Whether it's good or bad. Think of the contrast between that and what we saw, both of the rich man in Ecclesiastes and of the rich man in James 5. All right, how foolish is it for someone to think that they can manipulate the system of the world and think that, oh, I've got this down. I know how to walk over people. I know how to gain wealth. I know how to be really, really cunning and get what I want. And they come all the way up to the end, and God says, "All of that striving, all of that work for your own, grat- your own self, uh, your own self-care, your own gratification." He says, "That's all worthless. It's all worthless, because you didn't view it as a gift. You didn't view it as God's in control, God's sovereign. He'll give you as he wants to give you. It's your wisdom. You're seeking after wisdom to understand how God is working in the world. Understanding is of so much higher value than wealth that you would gain. Wealth comes and it goes. It's here. It's there. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, go after wealth. He says, seek after wealth. Wealth is a good thing. It answers a lot of problems. He says, get wealth. He says, get understanding. Turn to chapter 12. Let me end with this 12, 13, and 14. This is the center point. This is the culmination of Solomon's argument in Ecclesiastes. Okay, at the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It's everything that you have to do. You want to know what you've got to do in the world? You don't have to earn a certain amount of money. You don't have to accomplish a certain amount of things. You don't have to get certain degrees. You don't have to do anything but fear God and keep his commandments. I like the simplicity of a statement there. This is the whole duty of man. Why? For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's going to bring everything into judgment. A time for this and a time for that and a time for this and a time for that. God is going to show all of us how he's orchestrated all of these things, how he's brought them about, and he's going to say, what did you do with all that I was doing in the world? Everything that I organized, everything that I was sovereign over, everything that I orchestrated and brought about, this thing that I brought into your life, how did you respond to it? What did you do with it? Were you a good steward of it? Uh, let me Just one Ecclesiastes 11, just to point this towards young men, Solomon is writing specifically or writing especially in Proverbs to young men. Uh, 11 verse 9, rejoice, O man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. He says, take, take hope, take, uh, take joy, take joy in your youth. You're only on this world for so long. You're a young person. Be happy in your youth. Do what you want to do. One caveat. Know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. (laughs) Let's pray. (laughs) Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you. We're grateful, Lord, that you are a father that we can rely upon, that we can trust. Father, you are one who has orchestrated all things. You're sovereign over all things. We want to understand you. We want to understand your character. We want to know who you are. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be good students of your word, that we might come to know you better. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us uh, new of your kindness towards us. Father, you are not just one who controls all things and doesn't care for your children, but you are one who takes care of of your children. You work all things together for good for your children. Father, we think especially of Christ and the work that you have done on our behalf to bring about our salvation. How much more so will you bless us, Lord, and cause us to come to know you? Not not bless us in in terms of earthly things, in terms of uh, comfort on this earth, but Lord, in terms of eternal comfort, in terms of spiritual comfort, knowing all that you have done for us. So Father, we pray that you would give us right perspective. Help us to have right focus, Lord. Help us to be good stewards of what you have given to us. And we pray, Lord, you would bless our fellowship. We're so thankful for the church and the opportunity we have to encourage each other. We pray that you would bless our time together. We pray those things in the name of Jesus. Amen.